If you write in your Bible, it might be good one day to write this statement across the first blank page you've got. The story of the Bible is the story of how God is dealing with evil. If you don't know that, if you don't know that basic underlying logic to the narrative, to the plot of the Bible, you're going to misconstrue the Bible. The story of the Bible is the story of how God is dealing with evil. In the first two chapters of the Bible, we learn that there is one God and there is only one God. And this mysterious, infinite, eternal, uncreated being is enormously powerful. And his power transcends every boundary. In in contrast to a lot of the gods in the ancient Near East at the time this book was written, this God is not the God of some particular sphere or realm like the like the, the sun or the moon or the Nile. This God is not at all a God that is local. He's universal. He's not the God of a particular nation or a particular country. He's the God of all the earth and all the heavens and all the cosmos. He is the one and only God. He created everything. He is over everything. And His power is without limitation. It's not limited to a country. It's not limited to light. It's not limited to rain. It's without limitation in terms of space and in terms of time. He's in control of time. The past, the present, the future. And this God is not only universal. We also see in the first two chapters, he is incredibly personal. There's this kind of two-sided nature to God. This massive, cosmic, all-powerful side. And at the same time, this incredibly person-like quality. In the first chapter of the Bible, the way he creates the cosmos is, is with a voice. He speaks. This is very personal. He, in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, it says that everything was chaotic and formless. And into that, God says, let there be light. And there was light. His voice calls out and brings the whole creation into existence. And he loves his creation. Keep reading through Genesis 1. Over and over it says he looks at something he's made. And he just stops everything he's doing, right? Like Zeke in the workshop. He's making something. He stops and he just stares at the thing he's just done. And God looks at what he's done and he says it's good. Here we see a God not only with a voice, but a God of pleasure. He enjoys what he's created. He gets pleasure, like my wife does, out of the ocean. My wife, the reason we were in Florida is because a church asked if I would come and preach and they were in Destin, Florida. And my wife said, don't even pray about it. Why would you pray about it? What answer could there be other than yes, go to Destin, Florida? She loves the beach. I would come, I'm preaching, I was preaching in the mornings. I'd come home in the afternoons. We'd eat lunch together. Then they would go to the beach and I would sleep. Other than the sand and the sun and the water, I can tolerate the beach too. But here we see God in Genesis 1 and he has pleasure in the oceans and plants and in sunrises and sunsets and in the moon and in birds and fish and animals. This is a personal God. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we see that this all-powerful, 
creator God who is capable of experiencing joy and pleasure, he gives humans full access to himself. That's Genesis 2. Full access to this personal, all-powerful, one and only God who is the creator. This one and only God is highly relational in Genesis 2. He speaks directly to individual humans. You see, in Genesis 1, his voice is calling the cosmos. And in Genesis 2, he's walking with Adam. And his voice, this voice that has the power to make life, that is so powerful that before Pilate had to be silent in order not to wreck the crucifixion. That's the song we just sang. What an incredible image. The reason he was silent is because of the power that would have been unleashed. And so he's silent before those who kill him. This God speaking to Adam, to Eve, as he walks with them. And he gives humans, he gives them this incredible privilege of an intensely personal access and relationship to himself. And he's a gift-giving God. He gives humans the whole world as their home. You read Genesis 1 carefully, it's God building a house. And then at the, once it's all done, he makes a human and says, Here, it's for you. This is my wedding gift to you. I've built the cosmos as a home for you. And I give it to you. He gives humans the whole world. And he invites humans to participate with him in filling and ordering the world and caring for it and protecting it. In fact, we see in the first two chapters of Genesis that the God who is the creator gives humans the unique role of ruling over creation on his behalf. We are to be caretakers, accountable to the creator, caretakers of this world that has been entrusted into our care. He gave us a house to take care of. So in the beginning of the Bible, we meet God, we meet humans, we meet creation, we see how they're related to one another, and we see that humans are blessed to live in this context with a vital, harmonious, incredibly free relationship with the Creator. In the beginning, humans live in God's world and God's presence. This was the world as it was created to be. Not just fruit and fig leaves, but an entire race of people stretching their intellectual powers and their creative powers all as far as they could go in order to build a world of balance and justice and beauty and joy. Here the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve are learning at the feet of the Father Himself and they're building their city in the shadow of the Almighty, creating and designing and nurturing this world into a culture, into a society. The Bible does start in a garden, but it's not some Disney um, idea that we go back and we don't develop creation. The Bible starts in a garden where God then tells the humans to draw out of it all of its potential, to create culture, to build society. This is the way the world was made to be, a civilization without greed, without malice, without envy, progress, without pollution, expansion, 
without extinction. Can you imagine that? A world in which Adam and Eve and their ever-expanding family would be provided the guidance they needed to explore and develop this world so that the success of the strong did not involve the deprivation of the weak. Here, government would be wise and just and kind and resources plentiful and war unheard of. Achievement unlimited and beauty and balance everywhere. This is the world as it was made to be. The people of God in the place of God, dwelling in the presence of God, nurturing this world. That's the first two chapters of the Bible. And it is an intoxicating vision. Now, whatever religion you are, I ask you, what account can you give? This is the Christian account. This is the Christian claim for the way the world was made to be. What is your religion's claim? In chapter 3 of Genesis, evil enters the beautiful creation. Now, we're not told where evil comes from. In the Bible. It never gives the answer to that question. When you read the Bible, the origin of evil is a mystery. Um, While I was on vacation, I read the most beautiful book, Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses. I commend it to you. It is an it's remarkable. He has this great line: No creature can learn that which his heart has no shape to hold. Teachers, you ever try to teach a student something that they don't want to learn? Or that they don't have the character to learn? Perhaps we don't yet have the hearts that can hold the answer to that question. I like to think that there will be a day when our hearts will be shaped well enough to know the source of evil. But it's just there. Evil is suddenly in the garden. We don't know where it came from or why. The Bible doesn't answer the question of the origins of evil, but... What the Bible does give us in Genesis chapter 3 through 11 are three stories that hold evil up to the microscope. In Genesis 3, we have the famous story of Adam and Eve and the snake and the forbidden fruit. And in this, we see the evil of human rebellion. Humans, instead of worshiping God as the source of their life, give allegiance to the non-human creation. Right? God told Adam and Eve they were to rule the world. Then a part of the world comes to them and rules them. They rebel against the king. Instead of ruling creation, they yield to creation in a rebellious way. In Genesis chapter 6 and 7, we have the story of Noah and the flood. And we encounter the evil of rank wickedness. If you saw the movie Noah, which I think is a remarkable exploration of, of the theology of that part of the Bible, you see that it's this. It's just rank wickedness. And when we get to Genesis 11, we see the Tower of Babel. This is the, this is the, the strikeout. This is the third strike, the third story of evil. It's the climax of it all. It's the worst of it all. It is the evil of human arrogance reaching astonishing heights, literally. So Genesis chapters 3 through 11 give us the history of humankind in the grip of evil. And this brings us to the passage that C.J. read. Genesis chapter 11, 
starting in verse 27. In fact, Genesis 11, 27 through 32, it's a genealogy. It's called an extended genealogy. It inserts in there, or actually a segmented genealogy, it inserts these little like biographical stories, these little vignettes. The end of primeval history, the end of the Bible's account of the history of the universe on this massive scale telling the story of evil, it ends with a genealogy, six verses, and if you could read it with a close literary eye, it's organized in an X, which means it's a chiasm, which means it has a center, which means there's a focal point. A lot of words to say this. Look at verse 30. This is the great summary of the history of the world. Sarah was barren. She had no child. Genesis 3 through 11, this triple play of evil, ultimately gets to this point. Barrenness. And just in case you don't get it, I'll say it again. She had no child. This repetitive statement. This is where evil takes the world. History is played out. It's done. Remember I said in the beginning, God was a gift-giving God and it's a life-giving creation. And Adam and Eve, if we had read Genesis 1, were told, they, they, they were told that they were going to have these babies and they were to go into the garden and draw out of it life. But as you start to read, evil shows up and eventually creation is barren. There's nowhere else to go. There's no foreseeable future. It's hopeless. God created this beautiful life-giving world, but evil has darkened it and neutered it and sterilized it. To read the Bible correctly, you've got to grasp this underlying plot. The good and beautiful creation of God has been twisted and broken and sterilized. And finally, it arrives at the utter hopeless state of barrenness. This is not just a claim about Sarah. This is the claim about all of creation in the grip of evil. Then comes Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. So here we see the great creator God of the universe whose voice was so powerful and so authoritative that he called stars and planets and worlds into existence. That same voice once again rings out. Five times in Genesis 3 through 11, the word curse is used. Five times the curse of evil plays out until it neutralizes creation, until it undoes creation and creates barrenness. And five times in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the word blessing rings out. God is reversing the curse. Genesis 12 is the great hinge that all of Scripture turns on. Up until now, the history of the cosmos in the grip of evil. And then God spoke. And just like before, it is powerful and it is authoritative and it creates life. And tit 
for tat. It matches every square inch of the effects of evil. Five curses, five blessings. The entire Old Testament, the entire Bible hangs like an enormous door on this hinge. The call of Abraham. Three promises God makes to Abraham in Genesis 12. He promises Abraham land, family, and earthly blessing. These are a direct reversal of the triple curse on Adam and Eve at the end of Genesis chapter 3. God's work in and through Abraham renews the vision set up in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Adam was given the Garden of Eden. Abraham has promised the land of Canaan. God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply. Abraham can't do that, but he's promised it. There's a shift from command to promise because we're no longer able to do what we were made to do, and it requires God. Abraham has promised descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. God walked with Adam and Eve and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and Abraham is commanded to walk before God. God's call to Abraham is the answer to the problem of evil. Now, this is a unique answer. This is the answer that Christianity claims the Creator has given to evil. Very different than what other religions, whether your religion is faith in modern progress, or your religion is Hinduism, or Islam, or Buddhism, or radical modern secularism, this is a unique answer. Through Abraham, God will conquer evil. He will get the human project back on track. And how does God propose to do this? Through promises. That's a unique answer. Through seven promises. Seven promises to Abraham. I will make you. I will bless you. I will magnify your name. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. The healing of the world will happen through you. Seven promises. Which is stylistic. Because in the Bible, seven is a special number. For completeness. The complete healing of the world through this relationship with Abraham. Now think about this. The first thing we're told about Sarah is what? She's barren. The second thing we're told about her is she's beautiful. We'll see that next week in the next story. But the first thing we're told about her is that she's barren. Hopeless. Stuck in Haran. Immobilized. And into Abraham's hopeless, barren, homeless situation, God offers gifts beyond imagination. Gifts. Not commands. Gifts. Something that Abraham can't do on his own. And this gift of God, like all gifts, depends upon receiving the gift. Here are promises that require a decision. A decision to trust God. Notice Genesis 12.1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. It's an increasing intensification. Go from your country, your kindred, your home place, to the land that I will show you. I'm not going to tell you now. You have to leave before I even show it to you. 
Seven mind-boggling promises all hanging on one demanding command. Now God calls this barren, hopeless couple to abandon and renounce and relinquish all that is familiar and head to a place that they don't even know, an unknown place. Now here's the heart of what I want to say to you this morning. The whole story of Abraham is premised on a seeming contradiction. To stay in safety is to remain in barrenness. To leave in risk is to have hope. The whole story of Abraham hangs on this premise. To stay in safety is to remain in barrenness. To leave in risk with your eyes closed is to step into hope. And what does Abraham do? Look at verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord told him. He does it. He follows God with his eyes closed. Now, how does he do this, right? I mean, there's a group of people addicted to security. How does he do this? Out of trust. He trusted in God's promises. Promises, future. Remember I said earlier, God has no limitations, not with regard to time. The whole, the whole structure of this story right here is God saying, I control the future so much that I can guarantee the future. And if you will leave everything in the future, something will happen. And that's faith. That's trust. He does it. He steps out. He follows God blindly. Remember our reading that Sadie did from Hebrews chapter 11? By faith, Abraham obeyed God when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. That's faith. That's trust. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. God's command to Abraham, you know what it sounds like to me? It sounds very much like a statement Jesus once made. For whoever would save his life will have to lose it. And whoever whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospel's sake, We'll save it. You see, it is not only the story of Abraham that that depends on the premise. It's the story of Christianity. And it's you too. This is not only true of Abraham, it is true of you. To stay in safety is to remain in barrenness. To leave is is to step into hope. The story of the Bible is a story of how God is dealing with evil. And if we were to keep reading this story, we would see that that evil will finally be conquered and it will be done away with. Turn in your Bibles all the way to the right. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Notice... The first verse of the New Testament, the first verse of the story of Jesus' life, the book of the genealogy, 
of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It took a long time for God to keep his promise. Um, that's not quite right, is it? He kept it. Though. It took a long time for God to fulfill the promise. But he did. And he did it in Jesus Christ. God fulfilled his promises. He sent Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the solution to evil. And on the cross, Jesus took all of the evil on the world. He provo- in the world, he provoked it. And like a salve on a, on a wound, he sucked the evil out of this world. He defeated it. That's what the cross was. God fulfilling his promise, sending Jesus Christ. And there is coming a day. When God will finally, completely fulfill this promise. When God's all-conquering love will make a new creation in which the dark and threatening chaos and evil will be gone. And not just evil will be gone, but the memory of it will be gone. And the vestiges of it and all the effects of it will be gone. Now we don't have time to look at how that plays out at the rest of the Bible. We're just starting at the very beginning And so I want to ask you a question. Do you really want to be out of barrenness? All of the death-creating habits of your life, all of the effects of evil sterility in your life, Do you want to live in a creation void of all of that? Do you want to escape barrenness? Do you want to escape your sin and its just consequences and its radical effects? Then you have to hear the same call that Abraham heard. You have to follow God. You have to put your trust not in any God, not in a vague God, not in another God, but in this particular God, the God of Abraham. Not defined in your own terms, but this God revealed to us in Scripture. You have to put your trust in Him. Now, what does that mean to put your trust in this God? Well, first of all, it means believing the story I've just told. Look back at Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and him who... Now, some of your Bibles here say, him who curses you, I will curse. That's confusing, the situation. It's actually two different words. It's not curse twice. It's disdain or dishonor. In other words, this is quite remarkable. You know the law of Lex Talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which was quite an innovation of Judaism to the world. In other words, the punishment fits the crime. This is not the law of Lex Talionis. Lex Talionis. This punishment is worse. You disdain what God did in Israel, and God will crush you. Not disdain you, He will ratchet it up, He will curse you. And it's true today. To be a Christian is to believe this story. This particular story. 
that the one and only creator God is healing the world through Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that, you are not a Christian. You might be a member of a church. You might buy into the Christian morals and ethics. You might self-identify as a Christian, but you're not. If you do not believe this story and honor this story and, and, and give this story the dignity that it asks you to give it, God will curse you everlastingly. Now, you might not believe that, but let's all have the intellectual integrity to say that that's what Christianity's authoritative founding book claims. Now, if you want to make Christianity into something else, just call it something else. I could not say to you that I'm a Redskins fan and say, oh, that means I hate Redskins, the Redskins, or whatever. I guess I should pick another team and light a political current debate about their name. You can't enter into something and take it for yourself and redefine it. Christianity has been saying what it is for a long time. And, and in order to put your trust in God, it means at the very basic level, you believe this account of reality, that there is one God, that he created all things, he made them good, evil broke them, and that one God is healing everything through his, the descendants of Abraham, ultimately Jesus Christ. Number two. To trust in God is to do what it says in verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. It's the obedience of faith. If you're not obeying God in faith, you've got a problem. Faith is not an abstract thing. It only happens in the concrete lived out experience of obedience. Particular obedience. Now, what does God require you to leave and forsake and abandon in order to be a part of His kingdom? Well, I don't know that. I I think I have some ideas for some of you just because I know you well. But I don't know who your kinsmen are. I don't know what your place is. I don't know what your homestead is. What is it? But I'll tell you this. All of the promises of God hang on the obedience of faith. Will you trust God in the concrete details of your life? Third, look at verse 7. The second time God speaks to Abram, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar. The first time, Abraham obeyed. The second time, Abraham worshipped. If you want to be delivered from barrenness, You not only have to believe this story, you not only have to have the obedience of faith, faithful obedience, you also have to worship this God. You have to bow down to this God. Look, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Are you bowing down to this God? What is your heart clinging to? What is it relying upon? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it this God revealed in Christ, His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead? If, it's not, if that is not what your soul clings to at its center, you're not a Christian. That's what it means. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall worship me and me alone, God says. And then look what happens in verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. 
with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. This is an idiom. To call upon the name of the Lord. To call upon somebody's name in the Hebrew idiom. It means you, you turn to that thing named as the single reference point of your life. If you want to leave barrenness, you must believe, obey, worship, and you must cling to God as the single reference point of your life. That is the way God is healing the world. And that is the way He will heal your life of evil. Do you genuinely want to be out of the barrenness? What kind of renunciation will you need to do in order to believe and obey and worship and cling to the God revealed in Christ? Let me show you something kind of tricky. Look at chapter 11, verse 26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abraham. We need some mathematic help in the room. 70 years, right? Rather old to be producing children, but there we go. He was a randy fella. Now, when did Terah die? Look at verse 32. When he was 205 years old. How many years after the birth of Abraham did Terah live? 135 years. Now let me show you something. Later in this book, it tells us when Sarah died. Two years after Terah died. Almost all of Abraham's life, his father was still alive. Because of reading this the way you do, you sometimes think that it's going in chronological order. It's not. What does that mean? One more piece of information. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said, some of your Bibles have a footnote on the verb said. What does a footnote indicate? Anybody? Huh? What? Had said. That's right. It's a past tense verb. God spoke to Abraham, the book of Acts says, when he lived in Ur. And he told him to leave his father. And he didn't. And he told him to go to Canaan. And he didn't. He stayed with his father. His father had the idea, let's go to Canaan. And because Abraham was unwilling to go, they stopped in Haran. Now what am I doing here? What I'm saying is that faith is not easy. And we're going to see this in the weeks ahead, and I'll close with this. It took Abraham a while to get his act together. But he finally did. Now, I don't know if this is true. This isn't gospel. This isn't, this isn't an opinion. I wonder if Abraham had obeyed if Lot wouldn't have gone. The reason Lot went with him was because Lot's grandfather was dead, and now Abraham had adopted him. If, the, if Abraham had left originally, he wouldn't have taken Lot, and a whole lot of pain in Abraham's life would have been avoided. Now, we're going to see this play out. Abraham was a great man of faith. It took him a while to get there. Where are you? Where are you? The good news is God is gracious, and He will use even your mistakes for your good. That's a wonderful thing. Where are you? Do you trust in God?
Do you obey God? Do you worship the one and only God revealed in Jesus Christ? Do you cling to Him? Do you center all of your life around Him? If you don't, why? Is it really worth it? God offers a way out of the barrenness. Let's pray.